0: Chapter 46, as we continue working our way through Isaiah, believe it or not, only a few more weeks in the prophecy of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 46 tonight. And we're going to try to work our way through chapter 49. I think we should be able to this evening. You know, in ancient times, wars were seen not only as military struggles, but as spiritual confrontations. The conflict was not only between armies, but between gods. The prevailing army was thought to have had the stronger gods. And thus, when Babylon fell, it not only brought disgrace on its army and on its leaders, but it also discredited and humiliated its gods. Here in chapter 46, Isaiah mocks the gods of Babylon, and in doing so, he really mocks all of idolatry, since Babylon was the seed and the center of all paganism. Chapter 46 begins, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded. A burden to the weary beast. Baal is the shortened form of Beelzebub. You'll recognize this. It was a name that Jesus used for Satan. And here we're told that the pull and the power behind all of pagan and idolatrous involvement is demonic. It comes from Satan. Satan. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 through 22, Paul is explaining to us our liberty in Christ. We know that an idol is nothing but a block of wood, thus we're free to eat meat that has been sacrificed to one. Don't be bound by superstition or guilt by association. But we're not free to eat a portion of a sacrifice at the altar of an idol. For by participating in the idol's worship, we're actually opening ourselves up to the influences behind that idol, which are demonic and satanic. This is the background when Paul writes, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons." You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The Corinthians, oh, they were free to eat meat, sacrificed to idols in the context of their home or maybe in their church or maybe at a restaurant or maybe if Mark and Larry went to the market and bought a bunch of meat and barbecued it on the church grill. That's not a big deal. But if they were to eat that meat in an idol-worshiping temple, it would become a sin. Context is vital. And you know, the same is true in the exercise of all of our liberties. You might be free to drink a glass of wine with your spouse at home. But if you're at a party where the God of hedonism is being toasted, you should restrain. You should put your Christian witness first. You see, the pull behind any idol, ancient or modern, is demonic. The word nebo here means speaker or prophet. Notice he says, Baal bows down, nebo stoops. These gods of Babel were conquered and carried off on carriages. Nebo means speaker or prophet. You remember in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas healed the lame man in Lystra. Do you remember the story? The locals thought that the gods had visited them, at least at first. They thought Barnabas was Baal, or the chief god, and that Paul was Nebo because he did all the talking. Nebo means speaker or prophet. Baal and Nebo were their Babylonian names. Of course, the New Testament mentions Zeus and Hermes, which were their Greek names. Verse 2 tells us, they stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Now notice the contrast. The idols of Babylon were carried into captivity by the people they failed to serve. Whereas the God of the Hebrews had done the carrying, God had carried his people from birth. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. And I love that expression. Even to gray hairs, I will carry you. As as I get older, and I'm starting to get some gray hairs, and I'm starting to face some of my growing physical limitations, that I'm not what I used to be, it's good to know that the same God who has carried me this far has promised to carry me even into my gray hair years. And here's the bigger question for us all. Is your religion carrying you? Or are you carrying your religion? For some folks, Christianity is a burden that they carry. It's a duty that they do. It's rules to keep and expectations to meet. There's pressure to perform. Realize, real Christianity is not what you can do for God, but it's what God has done and is doing for us. It's not us carrying God. What a silly thought. It's God carrying us. You know, living in Christ without the Holy Spirit is like lying on a raft stuck in the sand. But when you're filled with the love of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the tide rolls in and carries you out to sea. You're now riding on the resources and ways of another. Christianity is trusting, not toiling. It's resting, not rowing. Never forget that. I love this little ditty by Hudson Taylor. Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work to rest in me. Is your religion carrying you? Or are you carrying your religion? Well, verse 5 tells us, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales they hire a goldsmith, and it makes it a god. And he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. He's making fun of their idolatry. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Notice the kind of god that an idol maker creates. It's a god they buy. They weigh silver on the scales. It's a God they design. They hire a certain goldsmith. It's a God they support. They bear it on their shoulders. It's a God they then establish. They put it in a certain place. And notice he says, it shall not move. In other words, that God stays in its spot. And there are people today who attend Christian churches And claim to worship the one true God. But in reality they have created their own God. It's nothing but their own mental idol. They buy its loyalty with their ties or their good deeds. They design it around a lifestyle that's comfortable for them. They keep it on the shoulder of their own service. It's all about what they can do for their God. And it never moves from the place that they've designated. It's sad Their God is one they own and they create and they keep up and they relegate to a manageable place in their life. Whereas the one true God is bought off by no one. He owns us. We don't own Him. He's not created in our image. We're made in His. He doesn't need our support. We need Him. And rather than tucked away in a relegated spot, Our God, His jurisdiction spills over into every area of our lives. It may be true that a self-made God is easy to manage. But when you've got a problem, expect no help from Him. Only the true God, the real God, the wild and woolly God can save us in times of trouble. In verse 8, God continues, Remember this, and show yourselves men... Recall to mine, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have proposed it. I will also do it. In other words, God proves his sovereignty by his ability to tell the end of a thing from its beginning. See, only God sits outside of time and can predict the future with 100% accuracy. God says, I will do all my pleasure. Who here in this room does all? All that he pleases all of the time. I don't. I suppose you'd have to be single, but I don't even know many single folks that do all that they please all of the time. No one does. No one does that. We all have our limitations, yet, whatever God wills, he does. Whatever God wants, he gets. Whatever God promises, he performs. And it is evidenced by his declaring the end from its beginning. And here again, he references his prediction of Cyrus, the man from a far country. You remember back in chapter 45, 100 years before this man was even born, God called him by name. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. Notice this. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Israel at this time was far from righteousness. On their own, own, there was no way for them to make themselves right with God. But here God promises to bring righteousness to them. I will place salvation in Zion. This is amazing grace. And here he introduces his suffering servant that he'll talk about over the next several chapters that will actually climax, the discussion will climax in chapter 53 in the prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion. Now in chapter 47, Isaiah predicts judgment on Babylon. Remember in antiquity, Babel was the seat of Satan. It was the hub of all unholiness and all false false worship. The first world religion that opposed and rebelled against God was based at the Tower of Babel there in Babylon. In fact, Revelation 17 anticipates a Babylon of the last days that will perpetuate this evil legacy. The Antichrist, religious, and commercial sinners will both be known as Babylon. Actually, we'll find the judgments in Isaiah 47 parallel to many of those in Revelation. A lot of what we're about to read may still be future, prophetic of the last days. Well, he tells us, he says to Babylon, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind them. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. Isaiah begins by calling Babylon a virgin, but those days are past. She's now been uncovered and naked and shamed. Babylon has disgraced and prostituted herself spiritually. The city had sunk into the very depths of idolatry. It's interesting, in the eyes of our Supreme Court, nudity is a freedom of expression. Notice here, according to Isaiah, it's a sign of disgrace. It was a disgrace and humiliation brought up in Babylon. And then verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, his, is his name the Holy One of Israel, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. In fact, in Revelation 17, in verse 5, there John gives to Babylon the name Mother of Harlots. The book of Revelation teaches that in the last days there will be a revival of the old Babylonianism, the ancient paganism and idolatry. Ironically, for years, it was Roman Catholicism that kept much of this paganism alive. Idolatry was incorporated into the worship and the practices of the Roman church, in the veneration of Mary, in the celibacy of the priests, in the worship of the saints. Today, this paganism and idolatry of Babylon, it lives on not only in Romanism, but in Eastern and New Age religions. And it's really more prevalent than you think. Just turn on the Oprah channel. And what's God's reaction to his people's flirtation with all of this or with this lady of kingdoms? We're told, I was angry with my people. Hey, does God ever get angry? (laughs) You can bet he does. We can cause him to get angry. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. God had given Israel over to the Babylonians to be judged. You showed them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Babylon showed no mercy upon God's people. The Babylonians had no fear of God. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely. say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Here's the brag of Babylon. She won't be a widow. She's not going to lose her children. She'll prosper. She won't be judged. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries. For the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am. And there is no one else besides me. Oh, listen to that phrase. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You know anybody you could say that (laughs) of? Boy, I do. That could be said of a lot of people today. In other words, you're too smart for your britches. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. You've become so knowledgeable, you no longer have any wisdom. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. And this certainly describes the fall of ancient Babylon. You remember prideful Belshazzar. He thought he was invincible. Oh, he partied with vessels from God's temple. He mocked the God of Israel. All the while, the Persians were launching a surprise invasion. They conquered Babylon without firing a shot. We studied that last week. But this description also fits the destruction of future Babylon. For it too will be sudden. Revelation 18, verse 19 predicts, For in one hour she is made desolate. Verse 12, Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries, in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Ancient Babylon, they were steeped in astrology. They were the first astrologers. They looked up into the sky to the stars and the constellations for guidance. The infamous Tower of Babel that God destroyed. It was a ziggurat. It was an astronomical observatory. And here Isaiah mocks Babel. She had trusted in the stars and in the horoscopes. Let them now save her. And of course they won't. She'll come to judgment, to widowhood, and to childlessness. Hey, just for your information... Three times in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 17, verse 3, chapters 18, verse 10, God forbids all dabbling in astrology. I don't consult my horoscope in the newspaper. Neither should you. Stay away from those things. This is of of the devil. These are satanic things that God will judge. He says, Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Babylon will be burned. As will anyone who dabbles with and in astrology and its predictions. Why would we want to get our guidance from the stars when we can go to the sun? To God's son, Jesus Christ. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander, each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. And then chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. Oh, how sad this is. Israel. Happens to be God's people, but in name only. They use His name, but they ignore His nature. Oh, they make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. He says, For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew. Talk about being stiff-necked. Don't know if you can get much more stiff-necked than that. Your neck was an iron sinew. How about that for stubbornness? And your brow bronze. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, My idol has done them, and my carved image, and my molded image, have commanded them. God revealed Himself over and over. He expressed His sovereignty by predicting the end of a thing from the beginning. This is how He differentiated, differentiated Himself from the idols that the people might be tempted to worship. And yet, Israel made mention of His name, but not in truth or in righteousness. Do you know anybody who oh, runs around and mentions His name, but not in truth or in righteousness? Notice it said, suddenly I did them. They came to pass. God had predicted these things. And then when it came time for their fulfillment, they happened suddenly. You know, one of the Bible's most misunderstood phrases is uttered by Jesus three times in Revelation chapter 22 where he says, I am coming quickly. You know, skeptics have read those words and they've scoffed. Oh, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming quickly. Where is he? But the phrase doesn't mean soon as much as it means suddenly. The Greek word translated quickly is takas. A tachometer is a gauge that measures acceleration. Not mileage, not even sustained speed, but acceleration. A better translation would be, when I come, it will be suddenly. Suddenly. Or, as Isaiah says here in verse 3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. Suddenly, I did them. Expect the prophetic events of the last days to occur in rapid fire succession. When they begin to happen, they'll come suddenly and instantly. When the dominoes start to fall, it will become a landslide. And yes, on top of that, it could be soon. The Jews are in their land, just as the scriptures predicted. Russia has aligned with the Muslim nations in accordance with Ezekiel. Europe is now under one banner. Plans are progressing for a rebuilt temple. The players and the pieces are all in place. They're just waiting for the starting gun when Jesus returns in the clouds and raptures his church. That's the next big event on God's timetable. And I hope I see it. I believe I will. And then verse 6. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now, and not from the beginning, and before this day you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not open. God had faithfully warned His people of judgment in their past, and they had claimed not to know. He had told them. They just didn't listen. They didn't want to hear. He says, For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Though Israel deserved God's judgment, he chose to defer and to restrain his anger toward them. Again, God is a God of mercy. And then verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another another. Israel is destined for a furnace of affliction. She will be refined in the fire. God will not allow anyone to deny his name with impunity. A furnace of affliction awaits all of God's backslidden kids. Not just Israel, but even those members of his church. God does put us through the furnace. He does purge us at times. He he does refine us. And he does so by sticking us in the fire, the fires of trial. And then he delivers us, and we learn our lessons, and the process continues. He says, listen to me, O Jacob in Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first, and I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand up together. God is the architect of the universe. He is the cosmic creator. And yet he cares about his people, doesn't he? He's offended when they don't listen to his word. He says, all of you, assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans, which was another name for the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. And the hymn here is the conqueror of Babylon, the Persian that we talked about last week, the king known as Cyrus the Great. After conquering Babel, Cyrus delivered the Jews and allowed them to return to their home. God raised up Cyrus and made his way prosper. And in the next few verses, another deliverer, comes into the focus. A deliverer of which Cyrus, in many ways, was a type or a model. This deliverer will save his people, though, from their sins. Verse 16. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there. Notice the deliverer that Isaiah is here describing was from the beginning. The Savior was from eternity past. Jesus, remember, didn't begin at His conception, at His incarnation. No, He existed long before Bethlehem, long before the womb of the Virgin. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, which was Jesus And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was from before the beginning. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. An appointed time is set for God to send His Deliverer into the world. And then here He speaks, this Deliverer. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. If Israel had embraced their deliverer, the Lord Jesus, their Messiah, Oh, the blessings that she would have enjoyed. Peace and righteousness. Instead, according to Romans 11, Israel has now been put on the shelf, set aside for a season. So that this outpouring of peace and righteousness and refreshing can flow to the Gentiles. But notice what she missed. A peace like a river. I love that old chorus we used to sing. I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river in my soul. When you trust in Jesus, that river of peace still flows. You can have a peace like a river flowing through your through your heart. You know, someone described the Christian life as out of the strain of the doing and into the peace of the done. Don't you like that? Out of the strain of the doing and into the peace of the done. The reason God's peace is possible to us is because Jesus has done all that was needed to be done to make you and I right before God. Hallelujah, praise His name. And then verse 19 tells us, your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body, like the grains of sand. His name would have been his, his name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. If the Jews had trusted Jesus as their deliverer, their history would have been written in a different way. Rather than a mere 14 million Jews in the world today, today's Jewry population would be innumerable as the sands of the sea. And of the beach. He says, go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. He's speaking to his people. With a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And he remembers when. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock. And the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace apart from Jesus, the Prince of Peace. God has made provision for us. He has smote the rock, our rock, Jesus Christ, and from Jesus flows waters of refreshing. But if we reject those waters, if we reject the refreshment that God offers us, what is there left to comfort us and to console us? There is no peace for the wicked, the Lord says. Now, in chapter 48 and in verse 20, Isaiah refers to Israel as God's servant Jacob. In the Old Testament, Jacob, or Israel, was God's servant. But you see, Israel failed to please him and to be a witness to the truth. And thus, in the New Testament, God sends another servant, his son Jesus. And in the next few chapters, Jesus is portrayed as Yahweh's suffering servant. Isaiah reveals truths and details about Jesus in these next few chapters that we don't even find in the Gospels, many of them. Chapters 49 through 53 are certainly high ground, even holy ground in the Scriptures. The summit of which is, of course, Isaiah 53. We'll get there in a few weeks. So chapter 49 begins. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Now remember, the book of Isaiah is a prophecy. And here I believe that Jesus is the one doing the speaking. From his mother's womb, the Lord made mention of his name. We're just just done with Christmas. This should be familiar to us. You remember what the angel said to Joseph. Matthew 1, verse 20. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. While in the womb, God named him. Just as Isaiah had predicted. And he he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Now, every now and then, a book will come out full of myth, sometimes just speculation, imagination, conjecture, as to what Jesus did and where Jesus went during his first 30 years on the earth before his ministry began. You know, I don't think it really matters For whatever he did, wherever he went, we know that he pleased his Father. You remember at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Obviously, whatever Jesus had done prior to that had met with the Father's approval. But here we're told what Jesus did, where he was in those first 30 years. He was in the shadow of God's hand. He was like an arrow in the archer's quiver. Jesus was hidden. Notice it says, In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Jesus lived in obscurity. The Father was preparing him and polishing him, and readying him. So where was Jesus before he began his ministry? He was in the quiver of God. He was in the shadow of God's hand. And you know, this may be where God has you tonight. Maybe you're hidden in God's quiver. Oh, you would like to be sailing through the air, striking targets, winning victories. But no, God has you right now in obscurity. God isn't ready to use you until... You're ready to be used. You know, Jesus spent 30 plus years in the quiver preparing for a ministry that lasted three and a half years. (laughs) Don't you get impatient. It seems the longer the preparation, the more glorious the work. Don't long for the spotlight when God has you in his quiver, in his secret place. Before an arrow is shot, it first is shaped. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now since Jesus took Israel's place, and since he was a Jew, here he is also called Israel. You remember, Israel failed in following the purposes, and so God sent a deliverer, one who would be his suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus takes the name Israel. There's another Old Testament passage where Jesus is called Israel. It's in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. There we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, at first glance, you read that, and you might see in that verse a picture of Israel's exodus from Egypt. But... When you read Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, there the gospel writer takes Hosea 11, verse 1, and interprets it as a prophecy of the family's sojourn into Egypt to flee Herod's attack on the babes of Bethlehem. Matthew sees in that verse that Israel is another name for Jesus. Verse 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. You know, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, ending his earthly ministry, from a human perspective, his ministry could have been judged a flop. Think about it. The very people that he had been sent to reach killed him. All he had to show for his efforts were a meager 120 disciples huddled away in somebody's attic there in Jerusalem. In, in other words, look no further than the founder of our faith to realize that you can't judge someone's ministry or testimony by human measurements. Buns in the seats and bucks in the bank and buildings on the ground, they can deceive. Doesn't necessarily the man is doing things pleasing to God. Faithfulness is the only true criteria for successfulness. And on that that scale, there has never been anyone more successful than Jesus. Notice, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus will minister to the Jews who return from Babel to their promised land, but Jesus isn't just for Israel. That would would not be enough. Jesus is for the whole world. He is even a light to the Gentiles. He will be a witness to the lost and pagan Gentiles. He'll bring salvation to the uttermost ends of the earth all the way to Stone Mountain, Georgia. Amazing. As a historical footnote, notice verses 1 and verse 6 in this chapter. These two verses inspired two parents who were living in Spain at the time, to name their son Christopher, which means Christ-bearer. They believed that their boy's destiny was to take Christ to the heathen and to be a light to the Gentiles. They referenced these two verses for why they named their son Christopher or Christ-bearer. Christopher Columbus's voyage to the new world was set in motion by God, even from his mother's womb through these two verses in the heart of his parents. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. Reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 11. It says of Jesus, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Isaiah says the nation, the Jews, they abhorred Jesus. They despised. They rejected his authority. And yet he also, he's also called to the servant of rulers. Kings shall rise and arise, see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Jesus was God's chosen. Eventually, that truth will be seen, maybe not by his own people, the Jews, but by rulers and by kings and by princes in other places. And thus says the Lord In an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And, and here is a passage that's quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul quotes this verse and he applies it to the age of grace, his own day. Which, by the way, is our day as well. To the Corinthians and to us, a light to the Gentiles has come. Our day, today, is the day of salvation. God has put salvation on the table. All we have to do is take it by faith. Today is the day of salvation. And then Isaiah continues. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Jesus will be a covenant to his people. His blood was the blood of the new covenant for both Jews and Gentiles. We remember that each time we take communion that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth, to those who are in darkness, Show yourselves. Those Gentiles who see the light, who follow Jesus out of the darkness, He promises, They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for He who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water He will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Which, by the way, is actually China. This is very interesting here. For the Gentiles who follow Jesus won't just be Europeans, or Africans, or Latinos, but even Chinese. You remember before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit when he's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it's exciting to see the ends of the earth being reached in our day. In the first decade of the 21st century, the church is growing everywhere in the world except North America and Europe. Realize around the world, 25 million new Christians are being added to the church every year. Did you know that? That's more new converts than the population of Australia or Texas. They're being added to the church every year. In 1900, there were 10 million Christians on the continent of Africa. By the year 2000, there were 360 million Christians. By 2025, conservative projections estimate 633 million Christians in Africa. The church is exploding. In Latin America... There were 50,000 Christians in 1900. By 2025, there will be 640 million Latin American Christians. And China, in the early 80s, it was said that 20,000 Chinese were coming to Christ every single day. By 2030, China will have more Christians than any other nation on earth, eclipsing the number of Christians in the United States of America. Isaiah said, those from the land of Sinem will come. And then verse 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. This is a reason to sing, that the Lord has comforted his people. He's had mercy on the afflicted. Remember, after the Jews are tested and judged, after they pass through their furnace of affliction, as he mentioned earlier, God will comfort them. This sees past the final seven years of great tribulation to the kingdom age when Jesus reigns over planet earth. In the end, God will have mercy on his people, the Jews. But his people, Israel, they want to argue. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And my God has forgotten me. The Jews claim to have been abandoned by God. This is a claim that many Jews have today. But God answers them. And his words here should silence forever those who try to say that God has rejected Israel and transferred his promises elsewhere. He asks, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. (laughs) My wife nursed four babies, and I observed one of the strongest bonds on earth. A woman is never more needed, and a child is never more attentive than when both are nursing. I also realized it was impossible for my wife to forget her kids for more than maybe four or five hours. She'd start filling up with milk. Her cup runneth over. It was an impossibility for her to forget her nursing child. And this is how God feels about his people Israel. It would be easier for a nursing mother to forget her child than for God to forget his people. He says, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is amazing to me. God has the names of his children tattooed on his palms. He would have to cut off his hands to forget his kids. And did you know that includes your name and my name? God looks down at his hands and says, Larry, Alan, Renee, Charlene, tattooed permanently in his hands do you realize that like living in a walled city there's nowhere for a citizen in a walled city to turn where he or she can't see the walls likewise there's nowhere that God can turn without seeing his kids he loves them so much they're his priority like a mom God is always conscious of his kids You see, us dads, there's times we get kind of wrapped up in other things. We get caught up in work. We forget about the kids. We get so preoccupied with things. Or we can be sitting there watching the television, and we don't even see the kids walking through the room. I mean, it happens to us. But a mom, a mom never forgets her kids. She never abandons her kids. Or a dad might get frustrated and wash his hands of his kids, But not mom. She bore them. She will never turn her back on them. A mom will never turn her back on a child. And here's the truth that Isaiah is teaching. That yes, God is a father. But he is a father with a mother's heart. Oh, God is tough. But God is also tender. God is strong. but He's also sensitive. He's challenging but he's also compassionate. In ways he's a father but in other ways he has the tender touch of a mom. God is a father with a mother's heart. Remember Romans chapter 2 verse 4, do not despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. It's God's tenderness. It's his motherly side, if you will, that assures that we can repent and that he'll accept us. And this is the kind of dad I've tried to be with my kids. I haven't been perfect, but I've tried. I've wanted to be strong, but I've also wanted to be tender. I've wanted to be a pillar of strength, but not a concrete pillar that doesn't bow or bend. And when my kids get into trouble, I've wanted them to know that their dead may be disappointed, but he's quick to forgive. And then he extends to them his grace. This is the God that we serve, is it not? And then verse 17. Your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. In the end, many of Israel's wayward sons will come home to God. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them, all as an ornament, and bind them on you as a bride does. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Israel's oppressors will leave, her exiles will return. The land won't be big enough, he says. And in a sense, this is happening to Israel today. This is why the Jews are building settlements on the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. The land of Israel is so tiny. Did you know Israel proper is the size of New Jersey? They need more land. On on a trip to Israel, I saw a real clever t-shirt. It read, attack us again. We need more land. For every time the Arabs have attacked, Israel's boundaries have grown. One day, Israel will get all the land. She'll get more land. She'll get what she needs for her people. In Genesis 15, verse 18, God originally promised Abraham all the land from the Euphrates to the east to the Nile in the west. Practically the whole Middle East will one day belong to Israel in the kingdom age. And then verse 20. The children will have the children you will have, after you have lost the others, will say again in your ears, The place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro, and who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these where were they? In other words, in the kingdom age, Israel will grow at a miraculous rate. And they'll wonder, how? Where did these people come from? And thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, and they shall not be ashamed who wait on me. For the last 2,000 years, the Jews have roamed the earth. They've been the object of most nations' hatred and scorn. Every epidemic, every catastrophe, every political or economic crisis has been blamed on the Jews and has set off a wave of persecution. Look what's happening in France today. Mark Twain wrote, Yet in all countries from the dawn of history, the Jew has been persistently and implacably hated. In the Middle Ages, Jews were driven out of Spain and England, then later driven out of Western Europe. In modern times, Germany, Hitler's Germany and Russia, and now the Arabs have become the chief enemies of the Jew. One day, though, the situation, Isaiah says, will turn topsy-turvy. When Jesus returns, when he sits on the throne of David, Gentile kings will aid the Jews. They'll help Israel. Believe that. Amazing. The nations of the earth, rather than looking on Israel in scorn, they will want to help. They'll be like foster fathers, Isaiah says, like nursing mothers. They'll even lick up the dust of your feet. Or in other words, bow down to the Jews and pledge their submission. Never forget, Jesus will return to sit on the throne of David. And that is a Jewish throne. Christ's kingdom will include the kingdom of Israel. And then verse 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord... Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. Notice that. God will contend with those who have contended with the Jews. Those pick on God's kids and you'll have to face their dad. Sounds like God's promise to Abraham, doesn't it? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And then Isaiah Wraps up chapter 49. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob.